And now, from beyond our dimension, this is the Jeff Mara Podcast. Here's Jeff. My guest is Barbara Bartolome, founder and group leader of Ion Santa Barbara. Barbara has had two near-death experiences, which we will talk about today. Barbara, thank you so much for being my guest and welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me, Jeff. I'm glad to be here with you and your whole entire beautiful audience. Thank you. Barbara, if you don't mind, let's start with your first one. And if you have any backstory, do you think that would help? And let's even start there. Okay. Well, I was born in Salem, Oregon, and I was one of five children. And as a young child, um, I used to create uh, situations where, you know, my mom or my brothers or older siblings would like look at me and like not understand what, how I just do that. How could she do that? And so the phone would ring and I would, you know, not realize that I shouldn't say, mom, it's grandma. And then my mom would walk across the room looking at me kind of weird. And then she'd pick up the phone and yes, indeed it was grandma. And I didn't understand, you know, why I could do that. And I didn't understand it was weird. So I didn't hide it until I was much older. I had a lot of things that um, happened to me that um, didn't make a whole lot of sense. And so one of them was when I was about maybe nine or 10 years old, my mom got a phone call and she was, you know, starting to cry. And my sister, older sister and my younger sister, we came into the living room, we were standing by her and we didn't know why she was crying. And we were watching this, this unfold. And when she was done with the call, she turned around and said, grandpa has died. And my older sister burst into tears and my little sister who was younger than me, my older sister was four years older than my little sister was two years younger. And um, they, they, they both burst into tears. And my immediate reaction was to smile and look happy. And I thought, oh, he gets to go home. Mm. And it was just like, oh, and my mom looked at me and was really, you know, upset. And my older sister was upset with me. And my mom said, did you not love grandpa? Why are you not crying? And she didn't understand. And, and so then I forced the tears and went, and I cried uh, to get myself out of the weird situation that had just occurred. But I never felt as though when people died that there was any loss in them. I felt that they were in a happier place, a home that I felt that was loving and, and beautiful. And I never, never worried about them from their point of death. I always felt that they were fine. And so as I was growing up, I had a couple of other things that occurred. Um, when I was 16 years old, I was at a shopping mall and my mom and I were walking across the mall and it was brand new and they were giving away a car. And as I you know, was passing the place where you filled out the applications, I knew that I was going to win the car. And it was just this hit that just hit me right here. And I knew I was going to win it. So I said to my mom, and I didn't wasn't allowed to drive till I was 18. <clears throat> but I said to her, Hey, mom, I need your driver's license, you have to be a licensed driver to fill this form out to win this car. And she said, Barbie, come on, we couldn't win a dirty sock. And I said, No, mom, I need your driver's license. So I dug in her purse. And I said, I'll meet you over at that store you're going to. And I stopped and I filled out one app, one, you know, little contest. 
uh, piece of paper. And inside this huge giant barrel, I guess there were 60,000 entries. And guess what? They called my mom and my mom won the car. So um, that was pretty shocking. And the funny thing was that since I couldn't drive, my older brother got it. Mm. <laughs> so unfortunately, I'm always telling him he owes me a car, but I don't think that's going to happen. But um, other things that happened was one time I was writing, I used to work as a newspaper photographer at the Salem newspaper. And I was an intern. And I was about 17 years old, and I was riding my bike across the bridge from West Salem, where we lived, over to my work in downtown Salem. And um, I had this all of a sudden pressure that was felt like someone's hand was behind my head, pushing my head down over my handlebars like a little 10 year old kid would be riding like, you know, and so I was fighting it. Um, I was, you know, I wanted to look cute when I was riding across the bridge and people seeing me. And so I, I didn't want to get down low and I didn't know what was going on. And so um, I fought it but it was stronger than me. And when I finally got my head down over my handlebars, this big truck came rumbling up from behind me and its mirror was sticking way far out from the side of the truck. So the mirror literally touched the back of my head and brushed it. And then as it did, the pressure on the back of my head released and I raised my head and I watched the mirror recede as the truck continued to go by. And I realized at that time that in that moment, it was a flash of, oh, my God, if I had been upright, it would have hit me right in the middle of my back, knocked me off my bike and probably into the tires of the truck mm -hmm. could have been my death. And so I stopped my bike on the bridge and I was feeling very, you know, amazed by what just happened. And I started to cry, actually. And I started saying to the other side, and I just call it the other side, I, I believe strongly that there's a God or a cre creator, spiritual being up there. And I, I felt like they had just saved my life. And so I just sat there and said, thank you over the edge of the bridge, um, facing the water, tears running down my face, very moved by the experience. And then I finally recovered, wiped the tears away, got on my bike and went to work. And that evening, um, I had a boyfriend at that time. He's still a very good friend of mine. And he told me about two months ago that he remembers that evening that we had gotten together. I'd ridden my bike up to his house. And um, he, he remembers me telling him of that incident and how powerful it was for me. So um, I didn't, didn't know, you know, how really in what words to use to explain it, but I, I did it enough that he remembered it, you know, 50 years later. And so those kind of things kind of didn't add up for me in my life. And I didn't know why they happened. And I didn't know, you know, does everybody get these? <laughs> and so what ended up happening was I moved down to California, um, someone that I met up in Oregon, um, I fell in love with and he was doing a construction project on the Oregon coast. And after the project was over, he um, said to me, if you want to move to Santa Barbara, I own a home down there and uh, you know, we, we could get married. And I had known him for maybe about nine months to a year at that point. And I trusted him enough to leave Oregon and move to California. And I had a son from a previous marriage. I'd had a three-year marriage when I was 21 to a guy that I knew in high school. And um, 
unfortunately, he just didn't want to grow up, didn't want the, I had bought a house when I was 21 years old, brand new home. I had a huge paying job up in Oregon. And um, he just wanted to kind of play with his friends and not be a dad and not be a husband and not be working. And I kind of said, you know, I don't think this is working for either one of us. And so we, we had an amicable divorce pretty much. And then this other second person, you know, said, let's move to California. So I went to Santa Barbara and within a short period of time, I started realizing that he had a real anger issue and I was, um, kind of trapped in the situation where he would, you know, get mad because of his work, and he would come home in angry mode. And if anything was out of place, or I did anything that was not up to his standard, then I got in trouble. And sometimes I was hit, sometimes I was pushed, sometimes I was shoved, sometimes I was kicked, sometimes I was, it was a lot of berating. And he controlled all of the money that I earned. And I was given a stipend for my monthly expenses, which was like not enough. And, and it was just really this very controlling, very hard situation. And, um, what ended up happening was that um, about in the seventh year, I think, of the marriage, I had put up with quite a bit, and um, I cared about him, but I, I was really afraid to leave him um, because of his anger issues. I thought that maybe he, he might actually do something to end my life if I left him. So I was living in this very dangerous situation and had no real support system in California. Um, if I had a girlfriend that I met at work or something and she came over to my home, once um, she saw his behaviors um, toward me, she you know, would be scared and wouldn't wanna come back and you know, the friendship would end and I didn't have support system. So what ended up happening was I um, ended up having a little baby girl with him and when she was about five months old, um, he, I, I actually, when he was, about, when she was about one month old, I went out, um, heard him call me from our back patio and he had a large um, two by four that was um, propped underneath some bags of cement on our back patio. And he called me over to him and I said, what are you, what are you doing? I had just given birth to the baby a month earlier and I was still, you know, in the mode of not being very strong yet or anything because you know if you've carried a baby nine months you're pretty out of it and so um he called me over and he pulled on my arm and he pulled me underneath the two by four then he he backed away from the two by four and the weight of the two by four came down on my shoulder and it blew the disc out of my lower back and I crumpled to the ground in incredible pain screamed so loud it, I could have heard me in China and um was really, really damaged. So the very first doctor that I saw, um, he told me that I couldn't walk, I wouldn't walk again, that I had damaged this disc and that the sciatica and the et cetera that was traumatized by it was gonna cause me to have permanent pain and permanent issues. So um, a friend of mine at work said, why don't you, why don't you see a neurosurgeon instead and take your x-rays and your CAT scans to this one guy here? So I did. And he was kind of cocky when I saw him and he had the x-rays up on a, a screen on the wall that was lit up and he was looking at him and he goes, oh, I can fix this. Well, 31 years old, <laughs> you know, five 
now she's that by then she was about three months along and then I had my son who was about oh eight years old or seven years old at that time I really wanted to walk and I really wanted to be okay and I wanted to you know take over my life again and so he arranged for another doctor and he to do a surgery at a hospital here in Santa Barbara and I was supposed to check in the night before so I did and they decided they had decided to do a myelogram the night before the surgery to check to see if when the disc blew out if it had a piece of it had chipped my spinal cord because if I was losing spinal fluid then that was probably one of the problems that was keeping me from walking so I went in they prepped me for the myelogram it's where they inject iodine dye into your spinal cord and they have an x-ray machine and the iodine dye shows up on the machine and they injected it right here at the back of my neck so they just numbed the area they didn't give me any anesthesia or anything else and they had me laying on my back on this x-ray table that was going to tilt so that my head was going to be raised up and my feet were going to be lowered and two x-ray techs were in the room um, two guys and then a woman who I'm assuming was a nurse or support person and then the neurosurgeon and the orthopedic surgeon. So they injected the dye in. They told me you must hold completely still because if you move at all during this process, you could have headaches for months afterwards. So I'm a follow the rules type of person. So I'm holding extremely still and the table starts tipping but unfortunately the x-ray tech that was pushing the button on the table started talking to the other x-ray tech who was at the monitor at the head of the bed at the head of the x-ray table and he wasn't watching what he was doing so he was pushing the wrong button on the x-ray table and he was lowering my head and raising my feet he was tipping the table the wrong way so immediately i started feeling really funny and i thought am i supposed to be feeling like this, this what is happening? I feel like I'm going to faint. And I didn't want to interrupt them. And I couldn't see the doctor, um, the two doctors, they were leaning against a wall, kind of talking to each other, waiting for the results, you know, for the dye to get far enough down my spine for them to see what was going on down there. And so they weren't paying any attention. And the nurse was over at this table by the door. And I'm not sure what she was doing. So nobody was really watching the table. And I didn't realize that I should say something right away. So I just laid there and I felt weird and weirder and weirder. And I thought, I'm going to faint. I know I'm going to faint. And by the time that I realized, okay, look, I got to say something to these guys, I couldn't actually speak. So the dye had gone in and changed the pressure inside my brain to have it not be um, me not being able to speak. And I couldn't raise my hand to touch and reach the guy. So I was feeling extremely panicked in my body that you know I can't talk and I can't reach and what's going on and then I started hyperventilating and that's what caused the two x-ray techs to hear me and the x-ray tech that was um, had the finger on the button he stopped talking and he leaned over my face really close down and leaned clear over the table over my face and saw that my eyes were rolling to the back of my head and I was going <laughs> And, and so then he leaned back and looked to where his thumb was on the table. And when he did that, he just made this face like, <gasps> and then once he did that, my eyes shut in my body 
And the next second, I was up on the ceiling above my body. I'd never heard of the near-death experience in my entire life. I'd never meditated. I didn't know about anything like that. And I just, that wasn't who I was. And, and so I literally had no idea why I was up above my body looking straight down at my body. So I said up there, huh, if I'm up here and my body is down there and he's calling code blue because the x-ray tech started calling code blue one minute that I, you know, left. And um, I said, well, I, I think I must be dead, but there wasn't any panic up there. It felt like I was wrapped in this absolutely warm, loving blanket of coziness. And I felt just perfectly fine up there. I didn't, all the panic had been left down there. And so I watched as they started um, chest compressions and um, one of the x-ray, the other x-ray tech started blowing into my mouth and doing um, mouth to mouth. And then um, the doctors were screaming instructions and the nurse was on the phone calling for a defib unit and oxygen card and the oxygen cart came in and this nurse brought it in and they took the mask and they put it on my face so they stopped blowing into my mouth but then the two x-ray techs just were changing every two minutes or so doing the chest compressions on my um, heart and so the doctors were you know calling out orders they weren't really interacting with me but they were just calling out orders and everybody else and this guy came in uh, the room and he had this box and up on the ceiling, it was, I was completely calm watching everything that was happening down below. And I felt this amazing presence that was next to me. Immediately, the second I got up on the ceiling, I felt this presence. And it felt like um, someone I had known my whole life and someone I had felt close to even beyond my life. So before I even came here. And so for me, that presence would be called God. And it, anybody can call it any way they want to. I don't think God really cares. But I just felt as though that was God. And so I started saying to him very calmly, I really would like to go back into my life. If I leave my children in this way at this time, then they won't grow up to be the good human beings that they're capable of being with the situation that um, they would be left in, um, they aren't going to have protection. And I need to go back to be their protector. And please, I just, please let me go back. And so there wasn't any, I need to go back. Oh, you know, there wasn't any of that at all. Zero. It was just simply, I know that I need to go back and I need to be there for them. So I said that about four times up on the ceiling as they were doing all the things down below. And the guy that brought in the box, he had gone around my, by the end of the table where my feet were and gone between the table and the wall and there was a ledge and he put this box on this ledge and then he was peeling these white things and he was putting them onto my, these sticker things onto my chest. And I actually had never seen a heart monitor before. And I wasn't a TV person. I've never really have been since childhood. And so I didn't know what he was doing. And I was watching him. So I said to the being, what, what is that? I understand everybody else, what they're, what, what is he doing? I don't understand. And when I said that, I was moved from up on the ceiling right above my body to right down in front of the box so that I had this visual of this box right in front of me. 
And I watched as his hand went between me and the box. So I watched his hand go right in front of me and he flicked this toggle switch, the guy who'd had brought the box in. And this little um, area at the top of the box was a glass, green glass screen. And there was this little dot that lit up and this monotone sound started emitting from the machine and it was going And so I was watching the little green dot go across the screen and travel in a straight line across the screen. And I didn't know what it was. And then it started again and it went back and it started again and it went across the screen a second time. And I still didn't know what it was. And the third time it started to go across the screen. I don't know if I got planted the information or I just figured it out on my own. But I said, oh, that's a heart monitor. It's supposed to be going up and down. And when I said that in my, you know, just, you know, not I wasn't in my body. I just said it in my head. Um, Then I was moved back up on the ceiling again, like, okay, well, she got what she asked for. She, you know, asked why that guy was doing that. And she got the answer. Now she's back up against the ceiling with me again. So then um, the neurosurgeon said he, they were standing back away from the table and he said, too much time has passed. She's going to be brain dead. We need to do something. And the orthopedic surgeon said, stand clear. And all the people that were around the table stepped back and he'd stepped two steps forward took his fist from behind his back, arced it over his head like this, and he just came down with a bam on the middle of my chest. Well, I didn't feel it. I was out of my body. I was up on the ceiling. I watched my body react to that because your body, when you're hit that hard, you know, kind of goes like this and kind of jerks because all your muscles are still alive. And I watched my body kind of jerk and I watched down below, but I didn't go back into it. But that's when the being that was up there next to me finally spoke. And in this beautiful voice that I could possibly never imitate, he said, but if you go back, you'll still be in your marriage. What will you do? In other words, he was reminding me of all the danger I would be going back to face. And he showed me all of these little film clips that just went flash, 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 flash. And it was all these incidents over the seven years that he had you know, hit my ex-husband now had hit me, had pushed me, shoved me, everything. And so it was all these incidents that I saw. And then he was, he gave me all this time to think about all the things that I had done to try to help my husband change. So I had arranged for a marriage family therapist at one point, and he rejected that after three or four sessions. I arranged for a pastor of a church to intervene, and he rejected that after two or three sessions. I had written him long letters that said, you just simply cannot treat me like this. I cannot take this behavior. You've got to, and he would always apologize after he'd done the things that he did, and sometimes buy me flowers or a teddy bear or something to apologize for his behavior, but he couldn't keep from doing it. And so I had always tried all these different things, you know, and nothing had worked. And I realized up on the, on, on the ceiling that nothing would ever work, that he couldn't change. And so I said to the being, it was really beautiful because all of that up there happened between the first strike to my chest and the second strike to my chest, which were probably only, well, I don't know, 10, 15 seconds away from each other. But up there, it seemed like I had 20 minutes that I was allowed to review all this and decide. And I said to the being, if you let me go back, 
I promise you that I'll get strong enough to leave him. Because I realized up there that that was really the factor that was keeping me from going as I was so scared of him. And I needed to build back up my strength and be able to leave him and feel again powerful like I had before I had met him. So the second I said the word him, the doctor, the orthopedic surgeon, he struck my chest with another precardial thump. And that's um, a term that they use for that strike on the chest. It very rarely works with patients. It's like a last ditch effort when they can't get the defib unit in, in time, which is what the situation was with me. They still didn't have the defib unit in there. And so he was trying to restart my heart with that blow. It's called the precardial thump. So I found that out later, of course. And um, so the second blow restarted my heart and I literally watched him strike my chest and then I shut my eyes just as he struck it. And then I, just as he struck it, I opened my eyes and I was back in my body with the oxygen mask on my face. And so I'm like, and I talked to the mask and I said, what just happened? And the nurse leaned over me and said, stop, don't talk. We need to stabilize you. And so I'm like 20 minutes with the oxygen mask on, like looking at people and like, what was that? You know, I had been up on the ceiling. I'd never heard of anything like that before. And so when they finally took the oxygen mask off, I said, what just happened? I was up on the ceiling and I could see and hear everything. And the neurosurgeon standing next to the table goes, oh, brother. Mm. And then I said, no, I'm telling you the truth. I was up on the ceiling. She was calling for the defib unit over there. And she was saying stat on the phone a lot. And then that lady brought in the oxygen card. And then those two guys were doing CPR with me. And they stopped doing the mouth to mouth when they um, got the oxygen card on my face. And then they were just doing the chest compressions. And then that man came in and brought in that heart monitor. And I watched it flatlining. And then you said to him, too much time has passed and she's going to be brain dead. And then he struck me twice in my chest and I'm back. And that whole thing, the neurosurgeon clenched his hands like this, like held his hands like this, pulled him next to his body like this. And he went, I am not going to stand here and listen to this. And he turned and stormed out of the room. Wow. But the orthopedic surgeon, he took my hand and everybody else stayed. They were like, ooh. And the orthopedic surgeon took my hand and said, tell me again, what did you see? How did it feel? What did you feel like? What did, you know, and he was, so he was asking all these questions kind of like, oh my God, you know, this was amazing. And so then they put me on a gurney and they put me up into my room because I was having the surgery in the next morning at 7am and not a single person at the hospital for the next four days would, would say anything about that situation or answer any question that I had about that situation. So when I would ask what happened when I was in my myelogram, they would look at the chart and go, I, I'm not, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm sorry. You know? And when I asked the doctors the next day after I got out of surgery and I was in recovery, the neurosurgeon went, I'm not here to talk about that. I'm here to talk about your surgery. I don't want to talk about that. You know? And so he completely closed me down. So when I, when my now ex-husband came that afternoon after the surgery had been over and I was allowed to have a visitor. He came to the recovery area and I told him what happened um, with that situation from the night before. And he looked at me, he was an engineer and he looked at me and he said, that couldn't have happened. You probably hallucinated it. 
So that closed me down further. And I knew it wasn't a hallucination. I've never done drugs. I never even did marijuana. I don't drink alcohol. I wasn't a girl that wanted to do that. My mom used to say she'd shoot my butt off if I did. <laughs> and I knew she had a Smith and Wesson in her purse. So I didn't really want to get in trouble. So I was really always this clean cut kid and did all the rules right. And, you know, good girl. And uh, I didn't know what to think about the whole thing. And it was really hard for me because I knew it, it was real. I'd had consciousness from the second I was laying on the table and everything was okay. All through the whole event, up and back down again. My, I was completely me up there as much as I was in my body. So it was really very shocking to me that no one would talk to me about it. But then I realized afterwards that it was probably because of the liability that the hospital and the patient and the uh, doctors would have had. So it, it, to me, closed me down. And I didn't talk about it for about 12 years until I, a friend that was a nurse um, and I were sitting and she was having, um, a, her mom was going to be dying and her, in the next few days. And she was telling me how sad that she was. And even though she was a nurse, she was grieving already your mom's loss. And I said, there's a story I could tell you that happened to me that might you know, change your outlook on that if you want me to tell you and she said yes please and so I told her the story and she said Barbara that's called a near-death experience and it was 12 years later so it was 1999 or something like that and um, of course the internet had started coming up and uh, she said go online and look at, at, at it and there's a lot of information online for you so I ended up looking at it and finding out more information and it all resonated with me. And so I ended up going to the IANS conference in 2009 in San Diego. And um, in 2011, I opened my um, IANS group here in Santa Barbara to start helping other people to assimilate into their lives and also give the gift away to people who have fear of death and um, maybe are facing death and need to know more of what they're going to be going through and how it isn't, it isn't hard. It isn't terrible. Um, maybe the pain beforehand would be traumatic, but the actual death process itself is really quite beautiful. So that's what I've been doing for, I don't know, 11 years now with my IONS group. And um, that's how my NDE unfolded. Well, thank you for sharing your experience with us. In the beginning, I said you had two NDEs, and during your backstory, you had all these abilities. In my opinion, you must have had your first one before you got those abilities. Is that correct? Absolutely. And so at one of the IONS conferences, I was in a talk that someone was doing, and it happened to be a really lovely lady that's a researcher named PMA Chatwater. Mm -hmm. And um, so she was having her wonderful talk and she was talking about the after effects that near-death experiencers have and I was sitting there in the talk thinking wait a minute the things that you're that she's saying are things that I've had all the way back to my earliest childhood and the intuition and um you know the different things that I had that were the after effects that she was saying and so after the talk I went up to her afterwards and said you know I'm really sorry I don't understand because I had my near-death experience when I was 31 years old but the after effects you're telling about I've had pretty much all the way back to my earliest childhood memories I don't understand why 
And she took my hand. She was so sweet and dear. And she said, my dear, I think you ought to talk to your family because they may not have told you about something that happened to you, or it could have happened during birth, but you may have had another near-death experience that triggered these, these specific after effects. Well, at the time, I thought, oh, what? I've had two? No, couldn't possibly happen. And I didn't react that way to her. I said, well, thank you so much. But during the conference, I kept thinking about that, like, what? I couldn't. And then I started remembering there were some times that didn't make sense to me in my mom's behaviors when she would be like brushing my hair when I was like maybe seven or eight years old. And she'd be gently brushing my hair, which wasn't normal. She was usually a very cut and dried person. And she said, Barbie, I'm really glad that you stayed, that you didn't leave. I'm really glad that you stayed with us. I, we thought we'd lost you at one point, but we're really happy you stayed. And I thought she was talking about when I was four and I got lost in a, a store and I was hiding in one of the clothes racks. And I didn't understand what she was talking about. And all of a sudden <clears throat> things started, you know, adding up. And so I was going to be seeing my older brother, who's 10 years older than me, about a month later after that conference up in Oregon. And so I thought I need to talk with him with because I hadn't told my family at all about my near-death experience. And so I, I thought I need to talk to him and ask him if there anything happened when I was young, but I don't want to tell him about my near-death experience. So what I said was, Brad, I'm going to create this book of all of my history of uh, medical issues. So like my vaccinations and the time that I hurt my arm when I was a little girl and the time that I broke my ankle and, you know, the different things that have happened through my life. And I'm going to keep this book so that in case I ever have to go to the hospital, they'll have my whole history. In case I can't talk, they'll have it in this book. And so is there anything that you can remember that I should put in this book? Um, do you, have, do you have anything you want to add? And we were out to dinner with him. And we were going into the restaurant. He said, I don't, I don't know. I, I'll try to think about it. So we had this wonderful dinner with him and his wife and his daughter. And we were, my husband and I, that I'm married to now, we were just enjoying it. And after we got out of the restaurant outside, we were standing outside and my husband was standing next to me. And he knew that I was looking for, my husband now was knew that I was looking for from my brother, some sort of something that had happened when I was young. And my brother puts his hand on my arm and says, Barbie, there is something that I realized I need to tell you. I, I should have talked to you about this years ago. The parents said never to talk to you about it. They told um, my other brother who he was, this brother was 10 years older than me. The other brother was eight years older than me. And the older sister was four years older than me. So they told all four, all three of them um, not to talk with me about what happened. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to download the new Bumble now. And I guess when I was 18 months old, my older brother disclosed this, that I had had a really high fever and I uh, went into convulsions and stopped breathing. And my mom was pregnant with my little sister, who's about 18 months younger than me. So she was probably imminently ready to deliver. And um, 
my dad called up the fire department because there wasn't a 911 back then in 1958. And um, the fire department told my dad to yell to my mom to put me up to my neck in tepid bath water, just neutral bath water, and then to slowly add ice cubes to slowly lower my body temperature. Because if you put uh, someone who is unconscious like that in a high fever state into cold water, it'll cause the body to go into shock and it creates more problems. So my mom told my brothers to run to the next door neighbor's houses to grab more ice because back in 1958 we had like one tray of ice cubes and so my brother my oldest brother came back first with a um, bag of ice handed it to my mom um, from the doorway of the bathroom and my mom was sobbing over the top of me holding my lifeless body and he said you were soft purple he said you didn't have red anymore you were a soft purple color and lifeless and my mom was holding me and she started, you know, putting the ice into the bathtub. And he said, as he was standing there watching, all of a sudden I leaned, I came back to life. And he said, I arched my back backwards and arched my head backwards and took a deep breath in. And he said, you changed from that purple back to the bright red that you'd been before they had put you into the water. And he said, then you start crying. And the ambulance pulled up in front of the house. He said they came in within 30 seconds, wrapped you up in a blanket, and they took you out to the ambulance and were taking you to the hospital. And so my parents were leaving out the front door to, you know, follow over to the hospital in the car. And we had a nanny that was at our home. And my younger, my older sister came up the stairs from being downstairs with the nanny. And I guess she said to my mom, uh, why was Barbie throwing a temper tantrum? And mom stopped and said, why would you say that? Because of course I hadn't been throwing a temper tantrum. I had been dying. And so um, my sister said, because, you know, the babysitter told me that she was throwing a temper tantrum. And my mom looked over my, my older sister's head and said, I'll deal with you when I get home. And my brother said, we never saw her again. So, and my older sister remembers the incident as well. And so both of them said, you know, you had this situation where you were dead. And um, he said, you came back to life on your own and nobody was allowed to talk about it. Nobody ever told me all through those years. So those experiences that I was having when I was a child, never added up for me because I didn't know about that experience that had happened with the near-death experience when I was 18 months old. So it really answers a lot of questions for me and it made me feel a lot better to know about it once I found out about it when I was 55 years old. But um, yeah, it was, my husband at the time was just really, you know, my, my current husband was just like shocked. He had these huge eyes and he was just looking at my brother going, you know, I, I can't believe she she's died twice. Mm -hmm. So I've had a lot of experiences, you know, beyond that, that with the other side that are just super amazing. And um, my brothers, I mean, my husband is always just flabbergasted when it happens and just goes, if I hadn't just watched that happen, I wouldn't even have been able to believe a story about it, but it was amazing. So it's pretty cool. I love the connection to the other side. I really feel it's the most important thing anybody can create in their life is feeling that they're connected and excuse me, um, you know, having that door open to the other side and, and having them know that you're appreciative of them adding to your life. 
Did you get any new abilities after your second <coughs> one that you hadn't had from the first one? Um, the intuition is just the biggest thing of knowing something's going to happen. And, um, you know, sometimes <laughs> it's kind of shocking because like in we, my husband now and I have a 28 year old son. And when he was in my tummy um, about the sixth month, I got a, a, a feeling right here in, again in my chest that I was going to have an 11 pound baby, which is a very oversized huge monster mm -hmm. so um I was pretty freaked out about that and I talked with my husband and I said I you know I, I haven't been wrong yet and I'm so scared and he said well you should talk to the OBGYN that you're dealing with and you know ask them if maybe you need to do a c-section or something so I said yes I definitely so I went to the appointments two different times um in the course of the rest of the months that I was pregnant and I you know congenially asked you know can we do another ultrasound and kind of check on the baby you know my husband current husband is seven feet tall and um, my younger sister is six foot three I'm five foot nine we're pretty big people in our family and my previous babies had only been seven and a half and eight and a half pounds but my husband's had hadn't been over you know six foot tall so it was a really big difference to have a seven footer and I was trying to get the OBGYN to see if it was huge he wouldn't he wouldn't fall for anything I tried you know please can we you know do another ultrasound no so the third time that I talked to him was one week before the baby was due and he said to me, no, we're not going to do an ultrasound. And I said, okay, then I'm going to level with you. I'm a near-death experiencer. And I have these intuitions that I get that are real. And I don't know how um, to explain that other than I get them and they're absolutely real. But I, I know I'm having an 11-pound baby. I need you to listen to me. And I need you to analyze what we need to do about an 11-pound baby. He immediately said forget it you know if you want to keep talking about this why don't you go find yourself another another OBGYN because I'm not going to discuss it any further and so I went home from that appointment thinking okay I'm working full-time I have four other kids my husband's two that I had married um, were my stepchildren and then my own own two I'm having the, the fifth one as you know little baby inside me and I'm like I'm working full time and how, how can I go and find another doctor in, in a week's time or he could be even be before his due date. And I'm like, ah, okay, I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let it, let God take care of it. So we get to the hospital on the day that the baby's going to be born. And I get into the delivery room and the OBGYN comes in and um, he starts to deliver the baby. He gets the, the head out of the, of my body. And he, he realizes that the rest of the baby is not going to fit through the birth canal. And he should have done a C-section and he starts panicking and he rolls back in his little rolly chair and screams down the hallway. Is there another doctor in the near vicinity? I need assistance. Scott. And nobody comes. So he looks at, the nurse who's at the head of the table, my husband who's at the other side of the head of the table and me. And he says, I'm going to have to break its shoulders to get it out. 
So I talked to the other side and said inside my heart and said, please, you know, I tried to warn him. You, you gave me the information, but he's not, he didn't listen. Please save the baby and please save me. And so he ended up delivering the baby 11 pounds, but the APGAR score that they rank the babies with in the first minute and at the five minute mark, my other babies had been nines at the first minutes, one to 10 ranking. 10 is perfectly healthy and one is next to death. So um, my other babies had been nines at the first minute and tens at the five minute mark. And this little baby was a one at the first minute and a three at the five minute mark. So very, very close to having left the world before he even got a chance to enjoy it. So um, 11 years passed, baby's fine. He's about six feet tall at 11 years old. Mm. And we're at an event and this doctor has about a year after we had the baby, the doctor quit his practice and became one of our city council members here in Santa Barbara and wasn't very well liked by most people. And um, we were at an event, a big giant event, and my husband was standing there and I was standing there and our, our son, you know, taller than me, is standing between us. And the doctor walks up to him and gets almost right in his face and goes, you must be the 11 pound baby that I delivered. And my son, knowing his, you know, birth story was immediately scared <laughs> and he stepped backwards and slid in behind my husband to put my husband's body in between him and the doctor. And then my husband and I didn't have to say anything. We just looked at him and he turned around and walked away. Mm -hmm. And it was like, you know, my husband watches the things that happen like that go on. And he, he knows that I have this connection and he doesn't, luckily he's so believing and understanding and has seen so much already so far. Um, one of the most amazing stories was when we were driving um, from San Francisco. I had done four talks up in San Francisco about my near-death experience in 2016. And it was about 9.30 at night and we were about 30 miles north of Santa Barbara and it's along the Gaviota coast. There's no, it's um, roads are, are separated. So coming southbound is one two lane highway and going northbound is another two lane highway on a different level most of the time. And we were coming along and my husband was driving our van, our Toyota van. And I was kind of laid back in my seat and looking out the window at the stars. And it was really gusty winds, but it didn't, you know, that, uh, that area is often gusty. And so it didn't really worry me, but um, all of a sudden, this big gust of wind hit the side of the van and I watched as my husband was struggling with the steering wheel and, you know, seven foot tall guy struggling with the steering wheel, trying to keep the van under control. Okay. That alerted me that, okay, we should slow down. So I said to him after he got the car under control and the wind had the big gust had stopped and it was just blowing really hard. And I said, you know, I think we should slow down. I don't think we should do 65. I think we should do 50. Um, we need to stay under control. And Victor said, yeah, I think that's a good idea. Yes. So he slowed down to 50 and we're going along for maybe another five minutes and I'm feeling okay and not worried and, and not uncomfortable. And all of a sudden in my ear, this voice goes, danger, big impact ahead, danger, big impact. And I'm going, 
Okie dokie. So I sit up in my seat, make sure my seatbelt's tied across me. And then I turn to my husband and I go, you know how I sometimes hear from the other side? And he goes, yes. And I said, well, I just heard danger, big impact ahead, danger, big impact. And I said, so I think we need to slow down further instead of 50 let's do 30 miles an hour. And Victor looked at me and goes, Barbara, we're on the freeway. We can't do 30. And I turned around and looked through the back of our van and there were no cars back there. But it didn't occur to me to even ask him if any cars had been back there or in front of us for the last five minutes or whatever. And what we didn't know was that the CHP, the California Highway Patrol had actually closed the freeway behind us because of what was ahead. We didn't know it was ahead, but they did. And so no cars had been around us, but I said to Victor, there's no one behind us. No one's gonna care if we're doing 30. If you see somebody coming and you feel better, more comfortable with doing 50, then go ahead and do 50 until they pass you, but then slow back down to 30 because we're gonna need time to break. There's gonna be something up ahead, whether it's a tree that's blown down or a car, I don't know what it is, but something up ahead is dangerous, Victor. We need to listen. And so he said, okay, I can do that. So he's going along at 30 miles an hour. We come around this corner and way up in the dark, way up like a mile ahead of us, we see this one single police car's lights and then they're going around and around. And I knew right then that that was where the danger was. So I was looking, you know, really intently through the window, trying to see what is up there. And as we get closer and closer, we see the police car isn't off the freeway pulling somebody over on, you know, the side he stopped squarely in the slow lane blocking it and the only way around him is through going over into the fast lane and i'm thinking what and there's no car in front of him or anything so what and i've never seen that before and so i'm really disconcerted with that and victor is coming up behind him and he starts to change lanes over into the fast lane to go around the police car and right when that happened, whoever it was from the other side that was helping in the situation grabbed, physically grabbed both of my arms. I felt hands grab my upper arms. And then I saw the shimmer of the face right in front of me, just nose to nose. And they screamed 10 miles an hour. And I was so freaked out that they were touching me because they're not normal for that, you know, it's kind of weird. And plus seeing the little shimmer of the face, I was like so freaked out on ice cream, 10 miles an hour, and I echoed him. And then Victor, he was already in the fast lane, so he slowed down and we had like maybe 40 feet before we got level with the police car. So he had time to get all the way down to 10 miles an hour. So as we got level with the police car, and we were in the fast lane. He was in this. There was no, no one in the police car. It was just the car itself. We we're doing 10 miles an hour. And just as we went about maybe 20 feet past the police car, finally, our lights hit what was up ahead, which we couldn't see until then. When we were past the police car, we finally saw it. A semi-truck had lost control, had tipped over on its side, so the dirty bottom of the truck was facing us, no reflectors or anything, and we were headed directly for the cab of the truck, which is where the gas tanks are. So 10 miles an hour, we were able to go off the road entirely into the gravel on the left-hand side and go around the front of the truck. And on the far side, I looked up and the policeman was standing up on the side of the truck 
um, talking to the truck driver who was trapped inside. And because the wind was gusting so much and his back had been to where we were coming from, he didn't even know that we were coming. So he wouldn't have been able to do anything to get us to escape. Neither would the truck driver. And we probably all would have been blown up in a lovely gas blow up had we hit that truck. But instead, we went all the way around it and we continued down the highway. And I began saying thank you to the other side. And I was just saying, you know, thank you for all four of our lives. We're very appreciative of what you did tonight. Thank you. I love you in my life. I'm always here to help. When you put someone in front of me, I will always, if I have anything to be able to help somebody with, I will do it. I promise you, I'm always there for you. And so I was saying that to them. And Victor goes about 10 minutes later, is completely silent. And he goes, Barbara, how is it that you're able to do that? And I said, Victor, it's not me that's doing it. It's the other side that's doing it. And I said, if everybody had their door open to the other side, they'd get these messages too. It's not just a near-death experiencer that can get this message. It's everyone, if you open the door and understand that they're there, whether it's your deceased relatives or it's just deceased people or if it's soul group or if it's angels or, you know, you, who cares? They don't care what you call them, but they they really care that you have an open connection to them. And once you do that open connection, they come in all the time to, you know, help you with things and, you know, oh, where did I park my car? I can't remember. Oh, oh yeah, it's on the second floor and that little thing, you know, it's like they just plant little things in there to help you out so that your life is a lot better. I just wish everybody knew that and could, you know, keep that in mind when they're operating through their own life. So it's been pretty interesting for Victor to watch all these things you know, go down, but I love that they're in my life and um, I, I would never want to live a life without them. Yeah. So how do we open the door ourselves? I feel that you just say to them, I just think that it, like when I'm driving along, you can call it talking to God or praying if you want to, but for me, it's just, you know, talking to the other side and I, and I also feel it's talking to God too. And I, and I feel that it's just, you know, like, okay, I have this thing I'm doing today. Could you help me with this? Um, could you, you know, do this? And I just talk to them. It's just having this open communication. And I often say to them, you know, I am here for you. And I'm here to serve you. And if there's someone I can help, put them in front of me. And so I take every opportunity to, I, I always say this to people, a lot of people call me from all over the world because they've seen the documentary that Anthony Chin did. He's a French film producer and it's had like 760,000 views. And so people call me from all over the world. As long as they can speak English, I can have a great conversation with them. And when they have grief or they have like health anxiety or they have something in their life that's triggering them constantly that they're having trouble with, I tell them how to change that is not to focus on yourself. Instead, look at everyone around you and find ways that you can make a wonderful moment in each day of you helping someone else, whether it just be opening a door for someone and smiling at them or waving to a baby in a shopping cart or letting somebody go ahead of you in the intersection and, and you know, waving or, you know, anything that's nice that you do that's giving someone else some sort of benefit, 
I can't even bypass a homeless person without giving them five, 10, $20 and saying, I hope this buys you food. God bless you. And they always say, God bless you back to me. And my husband's always shocked with that, like, oh my gosh. And I, I, if I have that money to give, why would I not give that? And if I have the, you know, brightness and happiness in my heart, why would I not give that? So that focus instead on you know, not focusing on, you know, my issues or my problems or whatever, instead of focusing on, okay, how can I make somebody else's day better? How can I make the world a little better? What can I do today to be a good, helpful person anywhere? Then that's what I really think that, you know, opens you up to the other side. I, I talk to them and tell them to put me, you know, in a place where I can help. And I, one of the biggest helper moments that I did was I was in my car with my daughters and my youngest daughter was third grade and my older Victor's daughter was in junior high and they had gone to a movie and I was picking them up on state street in Santa Barbara and I was parked in the van and they were climbing in the side and, and this guy ran past my um, driver's side door. So, which meant that he was running right down the middle of the street. It's one lane going up state street away from the ocean and one lane going down towards the ocean. And he was running right down the middle of the street. And then four more guys ran by the window. And I was like, what are they doing? And, and so I, the girls were in and the door was shut. So I moved forward and I was the first person at the intersection. And I watched as they ran through the intersection and the four guys caught up with the one in front and they knocked him to the ground and all four guys were punching him. Well, I moved forward with my van, rolled the window down and used my mom's cop voice to scream, stop that right now, really loud and very aggressively. They stopped and looked to see who was yelling that at them. When they saw the redhead in the van with the two little girls in the back, they weren't scared of me. And so I, they went back to punching him and I put my car in park blocking all the traffic behind me on the main street of Santa Barbara. And I got out of the car and I told the girls to stay in the car, don't come out. And as I started to walk across the one lane to where they were on the sidewalk, right in front of Saks Fifth Avenue in Santa Barbara, the guy behind me yelled, hey, lady, what do you think you're doing? And I said, I am going over to intervene in that situation. There were people that were walking by on the sidewalk. No, it was six o'clock in the evening. Nobody was doing a darn thing. And the, you know, four guys punching the heck out of one guy who was on his back and nobody was doing anything. So I'll be the one that does it. So um, I said, you know, I'm going over to intervene. And he said, oh, I, I'm not going to get involved. Well, that made me matter. Don't make a redhead mad. Redheads have power. I walked over to the two guys that were on one side, grabbed the sweatshirts of both of them, put my head down right next to where their heads were, and they were punching the guy. And I said, I said, stop it right now. And I used all the power that I could muster with my voice and my face. The two guys on the far side saw that energy and were scared of me and got up and ran. And then the two guys I had clutched, they got up and ran and they left the victim laying in, on the ground in front of me. So I helped him to his feet. He was 19 years old. I looked at him and I said, are you going to be okay? Are you okay? 
and he was already in shock and he looked down at his shirt at the red puncture wounds because one of those four gang members from another city were trying to actually kill him with a sharpened screwdriver. He was their target and they had already stabbed his 14 year old cousin right in front of the movie theater to just to do create a distraction. They chased him down and he was gonna be the victim. So he had over 30 stab wounds in his chest and I put him in the front seat of my car in my van and I drove him to the hospital and saved his life. And then interestingly, my third grade daughter was the only person who came forward in front of all the police because we were interviewed at the hospital after I dropped him off. She was the only one who saw which one of the four guys actually had the instrument in his hand and had been doing the stabbing. So she became the key witness to a gang related um, attempted murder. And um, we got to the courthouse and my husband and my little daughter, third grade, and I, and we had six police officers surrounding us because all the gang members' families were sitting on a bench across from us outside the courtroom. And I sent up lots of big prayers to the other side and said, please, I did what you'd want me to do in saving this young man's life. Please don't create a situation. Don't let this situation be negative and, and dangerous for us. Please get us out of here. And so the DA came out of the courtroom after two hours and was shaking his head and walking towards us. And he goes, you're free to go. And I said, why, why would we be free to go? And he said, well, I've never seen this in all of my career and I've never heard of it ever happening, but the young man that your daughter was gonna identify as the actual one who had the instrument pled guilty, which causes the other three to be guilty as well. And they're all going to prison. Now we'll have another um, hearing to have their, um, their time in prison decided upon. And so we got up and walked out of there. We never had any repercussions for that situation. Of course, my kids are like, don't ever do that again, mom. Mm -hmm. And, but I, I realized that I'm put into a situation because of my background and because of my power and because of my capabilities. And I tell my kids, if, if that were the end of my life and that's how I would go, I would be happy about that. I would be happy that I helped someone else and that I used my energy to help someone else. So don't ever feel that, that it's gonna be a bad thing if I were to be leaving in that way, because I don't wanna lay in a bed for the you know 15 months and be in, in pain and et cetera. I'd rather go in a fast way. So if that's my out, I'll know about that and I'll, and I'll go. And so don't worry, don't worry. I'm, I'm safe and I'm covered until then. When it's my time to go, it'll be my time to go. So my kids are like, okay, mom, sure. <laughs> but, um, you know, it's the way I feel in my heart. And I know that it resonates for me. And I have to do what's, what I feel when I have to stand up for bullies or, you know, do whatever I have to do. But I, I got to do it. I have to. So I will continue. Yeah, That's great. Barbara, is there anything that you would like to share before we go? Well, one of the things that I want to tell people is that um, we have a lot of amazing speakers that come to mm -hmm. our IONS group, and we don't do podcasts, but what we do is um, audio only, 
and we post that up on soundcloud.com. Mm-hmm. So if anybody wants to listen to Anita Morjani, Evan Alexander, all, all the people that we've had over 11 years, um, they're posted up and you just go on soundcloud.com onto their search bar and put IANS Santa Barbara, I-A-N. DS International Association of Near Death Studies. And if you put that IAN Santa Barbara in the search bar at soundcloud.com, you've got lots of audio you can listen to in the car, listen to while you're biking, listen to while you're walking down the street. So um, they're wonderful messages for people. And I really, they're free to listen to. So I really hope that people will look at that. And if you're ever in Santa Barbara, or if you would like to give me a call um, from far away, feel free to do so. Um, I'm pretty easily able to be found on LinkedIn and Facebook, Barbara Causey. My maiden name is Causey, C-A-U-S-E-Y, Bartolome. And um, Jeff will put it in the in the information there. And I, I like helping people. So if there's a way that I can help you, I'm not a trained psychologist. I don't have any counseling background. There's nothing that I can tell you that isn't just coming from my heart. So understand I'm not a I'm not going to be counseling and and doing things like that, but I but I just will give you what I know is my life view and from what I've gained from my experiences and that's just a gift I I like giving. So be happy to talk with people. Do you have anything that you're working on that you want us to know? About? Um, well, my husband that I'm married to now um, has three different types of cancer. And I have actually been for the last 30 years um, addressing one of those types of cancer for him. And about four years ago, that cancer morphed into a much worse type of lymphoma. And so he was accepted into a clinical study up at Stanford, which he got last September in 2021. And within 12 days of receiving the DNA reprogrammed donor stem cells, um, it wiped out, at least in his blood, um, both of those, two of those kind of lymphomas that he had. And they ended up finding, while we were up there, a third type of cancer that they've been addressing since then um, that is um, needed to have surgery. So there have been three surgeries so far. So I'm pretty busy with the uh, mm-hmm. cancer healing of my big guy. And um, having a happy retirement life. That's the other thing that I do. Plus I have a little granddaughter that's 10 years old that um, I adopted by love about 10 years ago when I first met her when she was three months old. And so I do a lot of uh, daytime things with her since it's summertime and she's off school and uh, a lot of school year stuff with all sorts of fun. So um, I, I believe another thing that I believe in is adopting people and I call it adopting by love. And so If you have a family that's distant or you have a family that's not connected to you for some reason, then I, I, what I do is I adopt the family by love. And so I've had a number of beautiful elderly people. One was 102 years old when she passed and I spent a lot of time going to dinner with her. My husband would come along too. My little granddaughter would come along too. Um, And we would enlighten her life and have you know happy moments and give her you know joy towards the end of her life because she didn't have other people that were able to do that and so 
those I know that those people that I adopt by love and the ones that I give the love to and help in their lives, those are going to be the ones when I pass over on the other side that are going to be waiting for me. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to see those moments that I gave my time, my love, my energy, my effort to and I'll feel good about that, having done those positive things. So that's what I focus my life on. And I hope that people will take some of those pieces and um, start planting those into their lives, too. Because when we have our life review, it's nobody else judging us. It's not, that's not the case. It's just us looking at our lives saying, oh, oh, look what I did there. Oh. Oh, I could have done better there. Oh, oh, look what, how I touched that person. And she did this and she passed it on. So it's really you looking at your life and saying, wow, I did a great job. And it's not judgment. So when I go home, which is what I call the other side, when you get to return, I call it home and I do an, a heart for the O. I do H heart. Me because home is completely filled with love, and I experienced that up above my body. I only felt love and acceptance up there. So I hope people will understand that and live their lives with that as their positive motivation. Do you have anything else that you feel like you want to share that you haven't shared? Yes, there is an amazing organization that helps people all across the United States, and. I have a husband who has cancer, who's had cancer for 30 years, and we actually get our care up at Stanford Cancer Center, which is about five and a half hours north of Santa Barbara. All across the U.S., private pilots will fly the patient and the caregiver to their distant care, and it can be for a second opinion. They fly... Um, for situations where there's been a transplant and the, the person who's receiving the transplant needs to be flown to where the transplant was removed from the deceased person's body. Um, they fly little babies to get extra special care at a, an infant center if they have something that the facility in their area it doesn't cover. It's called Angel Flights. And we are part of Angel Flight West in, in the California region, but it's other locations across the United States. And if you Google angelflight.com, um, I'm pretty sure that they show all the different areas and what the names of the um, Angel Flight groups are in that area. It might be called something a little different than Angel Flight, um, but they do it for free. And they pick you up at your airport and they fly you to your distant location and another pilot will pick you up after your appointment and fly you home again. Or if you're staying overnight, then, you know, that same pilot might decide to stay overnight up there and fly you back home the next day. I mean, it's just they, they find you a flight back and forth from your location and they have been the most awesome, incredible organization. So if anyone ever wants to donate to them or ask me questions about them or just google angel flights um, if you have someone who needs care um, that would be the best amazing organization to help out and to access if you need assistance and they are the most caring group of people and i we've just totally loved meeting all the pilots that have flown us and seeing out the window and watching as we fly up to 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 Stanford and it just saves you know 
wear and tear on my car, wear and tear on me driving five and a half hours. And it's just awesome. So if you have anybody that needs angel flights, then please check it out. You know, when you were in the car and the being was telling you to go 10 miles an hour, who do you think that being was? I don't know. And, you know, when I saw the face, the shimmer of the face, I think it was a man. But which man? Who? I have no idea. But I know they don't care whether you know who they are. And they don't care if you call them Joe or Fred or John or anything. And just like I know that God doesn't care if we call him God or the creator or and it, it, the name isn't it. It's the who the being is and understanding the beauty and the love that ex- exudes from that being. That's what's most important. And so when I saw that face and I felt that grip on my upper arms and I heard that 10 miles an hour, I don't know who that was. When I probably die, I'll probably end up having that person meet up with me and say, I was the 10 mile an hour person. I don't know if it's part of my soul group. I don't know if it's an angel. I have have no idea. But being grateful to those beings that help you and understanding that they're there, that they want to help you are the two biggest things that I can gift people. That's really the most important things out there. Barbara, before we finish up, Can you leave us with one last positive message? Yes. Love people. Love people. You know, use love in your life to make your heart be even bigger and bigger and bigger. And um, be grateful and enjoy your life because I feel that you're here to do positive things. You're here. We have struggles in our life and I've had them too. I could tell you amazing struggles that I've had. Um, But the big thing is that those struggles strengthened me and they gave me aspects that I could grow from. My soul is growing from those struggles and from the delights and happiness that I can create and give to others. So live your best life, go out and live your best life. Barbara, thank you for that message. And thank you again for being my guest. You're welcome. I really appreciate you. you. And I wish you a great rest of your evening over there. Alrighty, Santa Barbara sends everybody love. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks for watching the Jeff Mara podcast. I really appreciate you. Another way to show support is through YouTube memberships. And if you do, there are loyalty badges and other perks depending on your level of membership. All you need to do is click the join button underneath the video to find out more. Thank you for your support.